If you have a Bible, please open it to John chapter 16, uh, as we will be reading verses 16 through 24 this morning. Um, we aren't going to have much of an introduction. Uh, it's like eating a good steak. The green beans are there on your plate just to be done and away with and to move on, so we're not going to have an introduction. We're just going to eat steak, and uh, I will warn you, it is primarily going to be steak this morning. Uh, there's not going to be much milk in this particular sermon, so if you have to grip onto something tightly, do so. Uh, we're going to go for a bit of a ride this morning. Uh, if you would, read with me in John 16, verses 16 through 24. There John writes this, A little while, and you will see me no longer, and again a little while, and you will see me. So some of his disciples said to one another, What is this he, is, he says to us? A little while, and you will not see me, and again a little while, and you will see me, and because I am going to the Father. So they were saying, What does he mean by a little while? We do not know what he's talking about. Jesus knew that they wanted to ask him, so he said to them, Is this what you are asking yourselves? What I meant by saying, A little while and you will not see me, and again a little while and you will see me? Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. So also you have sorrow now, but I will see you again, and your hearts will rejoice, and no one will take your joy from you. In that day you will ask nothing of me. Truly, truly, I say to you, whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he will give it to you. Until now you have asked nothing in my name. Ask and you will receive, that your joy may be full." This is the word of our God. Famously, as we go through the Gospels, we find these times when the disciples don't seem to understand what's going on around them. And quite often, when they don't understand what's going on around them, it's because they seem to be dense and a little dim. They seem to not pick up on the very obvious things that Jesus is saying. And we sometimes talk about them like that because we know things that they probably don't know. So we know that Jesus has died and risen again. And so when Jesus looks at them and says, hey, I'm going to die and rise again, we think that it's patently obvious what he's talking about. But for the disciples who hear Jesus speak in almost nothing but parables and in figures of speeches and, and figurative language, even as we have later on, we don't have this today, but next week as we talk through the end of chapter 16, they are going to say in verse 29, ah, now you're speaking plainly, not using figurative speech. For him to always look at them and use figurative speech, they must have thought, well, this is just a figure of speech. We think they're dim because we know more than them. But when we come to verses like these, we find that we are in their seats. We don't really know what Jesus means by a little while. And so it is of some consideration what exactly Jesus is talking about when he says, in a little while, you won't see me. And then again, in a little while, you will see me. There are basically two different ways that this can be taken. And neither one is really the best way, or neither one is really wrong. They're just two different ways of looking at it. I think that one is better than the other, as you will see, which is always the case. I never get before you and say, hey, this is what I think, but it's probably not the best option. Uh, if I think it, it's probably because I think it's the best option. Um, but there are two ways to take it. Uh, the most obvious would be his death and resurrection, but in the context of John 16, it's 
it's probably not the, as far as context goes, what we would think of as the best option. Continually in John 16, he talks about going to the Father. The whole reason why the Spirit is going to be sent, which was, has been and will continue to be a focus in 16 and 17, is because Jesus is going to the Father. It is the ascension of our Lord after his resurrection to the Father. And in the context, we've already had that not only mentioned, but mentioned as a loss of their sight of Jesus. So back in 1610, as we talked about last week, he said that the Holy Spirit will be sent, that helper will be sent, um, sent to the world to convict them concerning righteousness. And he says, concerning righteousness, back in verse 10, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. So their loss of sight has everything to do with the fact that Jesus has died, has risen again, but then is going to go to the Father. They will watch him go to the Father. And so many people think that this is what a little while and you will see me no longer refers to. It is to the ascension, to Jesus going to be with the Father in heaven forever. This is not only found in the passage before ours, it's found connected to the very questions that the disciples are asking in our passage. At the end of verse 17, they not only link this little while saying, but they also find confusion in him saying, because I'm going to the Father. And again, in the passage after this, he talks about leaving the world and going to the Father in verse 28. So there is much, much in favor of thinking that when Jesus says, I'm going away in a little while and you won't see me, that that is talking about the ascension. And theologically, it all works. It works well with what John has been saying and what he will continue to say. But there are problems. Um, and there are minor problems, but I think that they're true and good problems. Most of it turns on this phrase, a little while. And if you heard me reading in those first four verses of what we have today, that little phrase, in a little while, is repeated time and time and time again. And it's kind of annoying how often he puts it. Jesus doesn't just ask the question, but he's got to ask the question again by saying a little while. Jesus says, a little while you won't see me, and a little while you will. And the disciples don't understand. So they say, what does this he means by saying a little while? I don't understand what he means by a little while. And then John Interestingly, says in verse 18, he narrates to us the very thing that he just got done narrating to us. The disciples say, I don't know what he means by a little while. And then he turns around and says, so they said to themselves, what does he mean by a little while? We know, John, we, you just said that. And so either John thinks that we are all utterly idiots, maybe, but he could also think that this is important and you need to kind of get a grip on this a little while thing. The a little while and you will not see me, and a little while later you will see me again. Given the nature of the phrase, it's hard to think and it's hard to place it as something that spans an entire human life or that would span all the way through 2,000 plus years of time. Now, theologically, we can get around both of those things. We talk about human life being like the grass that is here today and gone tomorrow, that our, our span of life is so brief and short it's like a vapor. We can also speak of God for a thousand years as like a day to him. We know that these things are true, so theologically we could make it work, but in the context of John 16, what Jesus is really trying to do is to quiet the discomfort and give peace to the disciples, not for eternity, but for their time here on earth. That is what his main objective seems to be. And so having a little while referred to not just his ascension, but then seeing him in glory at the end of days seems a little wrong. So some think that this is referring to his ascension and then seeing him in the coming of the Spirit. 
So the coming of the Spirit happens after Jesus ascends, and so they don't see him for a while, and then, all of a sudden, they do see him, but they see him in the Spirit. This is given some backing by John 14, 17, where he says that the Spirit of truth will be sent to you, and the world cannot receive him, because it neither sees him nor knows him. Well, if you're going to receive him, and it can't see him, or the world doesn't receive him because it can't see him, the obvious implication is you do receive him because you can see him. Now, it doesn't mean see with sight. It means see with belief or with faith or something like that. But nevertheless, you see him. And maybe we can make a connection between seeing the Spirit and seeing Jesus the same way we see the Father when we see Jesus. But this is also really weird and really difficult because in the first place, it's obvious that not seeing Jesus is not a metaphorical not seeing Jesus. It's not like they look at him and it's like, bro, you don't even see me. That's not what he means. He means you don't physically see me. You, You can't see my outline and my shape. You don't see my form anymore. And that is precisely what every, everyone thinks that he means by the first a little while and you will not see me. He says then a little while longer and you will see me. But if that is simply in the coming of the Spirit, he's changed a literal meaning for a figurative meaning and has given us no indication as to why that is. It's hard for us to believe that that is precisely what's going on. Maybe it's not hard for you, but it's hard for me to get on board with. And so I think rather what Jesus is talking about here is his death and resurrection. But we need to understand that standing against a huge amount of context. So we better have some good reasons why. And these are those reasons. First, uh, we shouldn't think that his death and resurrection is a separate event wholly from his ascension to the Father. The ascension is a natural extension of his death and resurrection. We don't have time to get into it today, but they're not, they're not two completely mutually exclusive events. The ascension was all but guaranteed as soon as he got up out of the grave. Second, it makes good sense of a little while. So in both cases, if it's talking about his death and his resurrection, The words a little while mean what they normally mean when we hear the words a little while. If you say, hey, a little while is a day, we can buy that. Hey, a little while is three days after that, again, we can buy that. It's different than saying a little while is going to be 40 days and then a little while is going to be 2,000 plus years. That, That is a much harder way to understand that. Third, both seeings will be literal seeings. The disciples won't lay their eyes on him because Jesus will be in the tomb and that tomb door will be shut. And then in his resurrection, they will literally lay eyes upon him. Well, that seems weird. They won't lay their eyes upon him, but they will literally see him again, right? You got to be careful when you use that word literally. They will see him again. And in seeing him, it means the same thing that it does the first time. Fourth, in John's gospel, this reads less like simply a statement and more like fulfilled prophecy. So he says, I am going away, you won't see me, then you will see me, and in verse 22 he says this, you will rejoice and no one will take your joy from you. That when they see Jesus, they will rejoice. Well, what happens later on in John, in chapter 20, in verse 20, Jesus shows them his scars, but he also says to them, peace with you, peace be with you. And John 20, 20 replies in this way, when he said this, Jesus showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples rejoiced when they saw the Lord. Almost literally what it says that they would do here. They look upon him and they rejoice. And fifth, if we follow that joy through the book of Acts, it does seem to be the kind of joy that no one could take away from them. 
the, the apostles are the kind of guys who would gather together and they would have people tell them, no, you can't preach the name of Jesus Christ. They would continue to preach the name of Jesus Christ. They would then get beaten for preaching the name of Jesus Christ, leave, give one another a high five and say, I'm so happy that we were able to suffer for the name of Jesus. You know, that is the kind of, of walking through the world that appears to be something that they can't take that joy away from you. That appears to be the kind of thing that Jesus himself is talking about here. So the point of all of the verses that we've read is basically this. Jesus will, for a time, go out of sight for the disciples. They will not be able to see him because he will die and he will be laid in a tomb. And even as the Apostles' Creed say, he will descend to the dead. He will go down to the very depths of Hades, which is not meant to be hell, but it's meant to be simply the realm of the dead. He will go down to Sheol. Then he will be raised from the grave, and they will see him again, and they will rejoice, and they will have in that span of time, those three days, severe, dark, weeping, and anguish. And when they see Jesus again, because that anguish is now relieved, they will have rejoicing. Jesus will then ascend to the Father, and they will pray to the Father in the name of Jesus Christ. They haven't had to do that so far, for Jesus has been with them, but now they will have to because he is going away. So, if that is the main part of the point of this particular passage, I want to do something a little bit different today, and that is focus on the metaphor that Jesus uses here and to trace what that metaphor means. And the metaphor that Jesus gives is just verse 21, and that's pretty much all we're going to talk about the rest of our time. And that is this metaphor of giving birth. Let's read those, that one verse again so that we get the context or we get at least the, the crux of what Jesus is saying there. He says, When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. So it's a very simple metaphor. He's saying, listen, you're going to have a lot of pain. You're going to have a lot of anguish. You're going to have a lot of sorrow. But it's like a woman giving birth. And right as she comes up to the point of birth, she's laboring. She's in pain. She's it's certainly in those days wondering, am I going to make it through this alive? Is my baby going to make it through this alive? And then there is tremendous joy when that child is placed upon her. And she, she has the fullness of everything that she has come to do. He says, this is what you're going to be like. Now, it's a really brilliant metaphor, and it's a brilliant metaphor because, one, this is something that is true in every single culture. There isn't a culture around that doesn't understand the anguish and the toil and the turmoil of a woman giving birth and the joy that occurs afterwards. And there's plenty of metaphors that need sort of cultural explanation. So even when I said earlier, you know, that maybe we're a little dim or or the disciples are a little dim and they don't understand, not all cultures are going to be able to kind of match that metaphor. Not every culture uses the intensity of light as a metaphor for how intelligent somebody is. They just don't do that. We even have sayings like, he's not the brightest bulb in the pack or something like that. Well, that not only assumes that you have brightness as a metaphor for intelligence, but it also assumes that you understand that bulbs give light. If you went back and you told Martin Luther that, he would be wondering why you thought that flower bulbs give light to things, right? It doesn't make any sense. So metaphors have to sometimes be culturally explained, but this one just works everywhere. It's ubiquitous. So even if you don't know the biblical freight that comes along with it, the metaphor works and it makes good sense. And so it's brilliant from that perspective. But its biblical themes make it very, very rich indeed. 
because childbirth is universal and it's a theme of human existence that women suffer and have pain and then deliver children. And if it's going to be a theme that kind of runs through scripture, and I think that it is, speaking of the turmoil that comes before salvation, we should find it at the very earliest stages in scripture. And indeed we do. So what we're going to do over the remaining time is kind of trace this theme and to, theme and to see what it says about our position as saved by the hope of Jesus Christ and his resurrection. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve have been created and they exist together, but they are also deceived by the serpent. God has told them that from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they should not eat, and if they do eat it, they will surely die. Satan comes in the form of a serpent and says, nah, you're not going to die. Go ahead and eat it. Eve thinks about it, eats it, passes it to Adam, he eats it. Death has already been promised to them by the word of God. Before he turns to Eve, though, he turns to the serpent and passes down a curse. That curse is this in 3.15, Genesis 3.15, a very famous curse. He talks about how the snake will have to go on its belly the rest of its livelihood, but he also says this, I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Now, Theologians have long looked at that and said this is the promise of what Jesus would come to do, that there would be a seed who was given to the woman who would destroy the serpent. And now that's not the only problem that they have here, but as you read through scripture, you kind of come to the, the understanding that what has happened in Genesis is an overturning of the world. And now, even as Jesus has just gotten done talking about the, the ruler of this world is judged, the ruler of this world is no less than Satan, there is oppression of the people of God that's going to happen from this snake. But there is one coming from the woman who will indeed crush him and undo all of the oppression of God's people. But lest they are to think that this is just magically going to happen without suffering and without pain, in the very next verse, he turns to Eve and he says this, You will indeed bear a seed who will crush the serpent's head, but... I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. There will be pain to make all of these promises come true. There will be suffering in order to make this happen. So on the one hand, there is this deliverance from the oppression of Satan, but God makes it clear that to go from death and from oppression by Satan to the crushing of him is a pathway of giving birth by having seed by having children, there is birth, but that is littered with pain and suffering. And there is no way to escape that. The seed is what will crush him, but the seed is what will cause you pain and suffering. In Genesis 4, lest anyone be deceived and think that this is going to happen solely by human will and exertion, solely by a woman's ability to take the pain and the suffering, Eve makes it clear on the very first time that she has a child, I have gotten a man with the help of the Lord. That while there will be pain and suffering, that is not simply something human beings achieve on their own, but it is only through the grace and the mercy of God. Not only has grace and mercy kept them alive to this point, but grace and mercy also provides them with children that they have. The promise is true because God helps his people. So again, on the one hand is the promise of death and of curse and the rule of Satan. On the other hand is deliverance. And the road in between them is based in no small part on the suffering of women bringing forth children. Genesis 5, 
makes this even clearer. Although no woman is mentioned, I think that it is enough of a ubiquitous experience that Scripture doesn't need to keep mentioning that every time a woman gives birth to a child, it is filled and wrought with pain. And so what we have is this continual domino effect. We have one person dying and knocking over, but only after he has produced offspring. That offspring then die and knock over, but they produce an offspring. And so death reigns over everybody, but God's gracious provision through the suffering of women is life. And the promise continues to go until Genesis 12, when God calls Abraham and promises him, you guessed it, a bunch of kids, as theologians like to put it. As a matter of fact, he promises him a lot of stuff, but the one thing that he needs more than anything else are children. He realizes very acutely that none of the other promises mean anything to him outside of children. This is his promise or his problem in Genesis 15. When God says, you're blessed, Abraham looks back at him and says, oh, Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless. And the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus. He says, you can make my house as grand as you want it to be, but if I don't have kids, it's meaningless. It's almost like this promise is, in a sense, trying to show the overturning of the curse. That Abraham, you're going to die And the way I'm going to show you that I'm going to give you an abundance of life is by giving you an abundance of children. And therefore, he takes him outside and he points him at the sky and he says, count the stars. And he points to the the metaphor of the sea and the sand on the seashore. And he says, count the shells. And if you can do all of that, then you know how many you will have. There is a problem, however. Sarai, his wife, or Sarah, his wife, is barren. She cannot have children. And so in a moment of great selflessness, but also of grand ignorance as to what's going to happen, she decides that she is going to make the promise happen for Abraham. She knows the difficulty that is on Abraham. She knows that his whole life is based on having these children, and she knows that she cannot give them to him. So she hands him her maidservant, Hagar. And he has a child through Hagar. And Abraham sees this child as everything that God had promised. And God shows up one day and he says, No, that is not the child that I have promised. Because Abraham didn't know what apparently Eve did. And that is, you're not going to have children of the promise without the infusion of God's grace and kindness in that. No human achievement is going to bring about what God wants to have happen. And so he looks at them and says, no, Sarah is going to have a child. That child will be the child of promise. And Sarah's got two major things going against her. One, she is old. And two, she has a track record of not having children. So now, not only has she never had a child and couldn't have a child, but now she is so far past childbearing age, this is nigh impossible. Interestingly and importantly, as something we will return to, Isaiah in Isaiah 51, 1 through 2, refers to both Sarah and Abraham as nothing but rocks. Listen to me, you who pursue righteousness, you who seek the Lord. Look to the rock from which you were hewn, and to the quarry from which you were dug. Look to Abraham your father, and to Sarah who bore you. For he was but one when I called him, that I might bless him and multiply him. It was nothing but a rock. This is a picture of her tomb being an emptied and hollowed out rock from which God brought forth life. Paul in Romans 4 says, these two people were as good as dead. The emphasis being that 
the bringing forth of children was all of God's grace. But at the same time, we are never to think that somehow Sarah miraculously got out of the pain of childbirth. That was always there for her. The curse was still there. We see this theme repeated throughout Scripture. The deliverance from Egypt was brought about by God's grace before Moses was ever in the presence of that bush because Pharaoh, who is clearly a stand-in from Satan, tried to kill all the seed. He tried to drown all of the children of Israel. He tried to drown all of the, the boys in Israel. But he was saved because women continued to give birth. Samson's mother, who was barren, gives birth to a savior in Israel. Samuel's mother, Hannah, who was barren, gives birth to a prophet, a priest, and a kingmaker. And these sort of barren yet pregnant episodes are there, not because every woman in Israel followed this theme, but because God wanted to remind us continually that salvation, the picture of salvation in children, comes through God's provision of children as the people await the one who will crush the head of those who oppress them, but only by God's grace. This theme then is developed in the prophets and on Isaiah. And no longer do we focus on individual women giving birth and going through anguish in giving birth. Now it is the nation as a whole, which is right, because the nation as a whole is pictured as the wife and the bride of God. And as the bride of God, they should be bringing forth children for God, but they can't. So this particular nature of mothers suffering and bringing forth children is replaced by the nation suffering and bringing forth the Messiah. This is at least echoed and in the background of the great promises of Christ in Isaiah 7 and in 9. But there is, of course, a problem. Isaiah 26, and Isaiah develops the theme quite a bit throughout his letter. Isaiah, in chapter 26, verses 16 through 18, says this, O Lord, in distress they sought you, they poured out a whispered prayer when your discipline was upon them. Like a pregnant woman who writhes and cries out in her pangs when she is near to giving birth, so were we because of you, O Lord. We were pregnant, we writhed, but we have given birth to wind. We have accomplished no deliverance in the earth, and the inhabitants of the world have not fallen. Like Ecclesiastes who says that the toil and the labor of people under the sun is like a grasping after the wind. Such a beautiful picture because you can feel the wind. It feels like there should be substance. When you run into it, you can feel it holding you back. When you run with it, you can feel it pushing you forward. But when you try and grasp it, man, there's nothing there. You think it's solid. You think it has substance, but it's not there. And he's saying, our people writhed in pain, and we thought that that pain was going to give birth to something of substance. But in the end, all it gave birth to was a vapor. There was nothing there for us. They strove on their own. Notice what he says at the end of that in verse 18. We have accomplished no deliverance. Just like the oppression that was promised to come to an end in Genesis 3. They, they, they writhed in labor pains and they brought forward no deliverance. There was no deliverer for them. There was no Messiah for them. But even here in Isaiah 26, the very next verse shows that God will bring life even from death. And in 2619, he, he says this. This is directly after what we just read. There is no conjunction. There's no, there's no kind of explanation. It just immediately switches tack and says, 
Your dead shall live, their bodies shall rise. You who dwell in the dust, awake and sing for joy. For your dew is a dew of light, and the earth will give birth to the dead. So they, in their anguish, are trying to bring forward a child who will deliver them. Again, this is all sort of symbolic, but nevertheless. Making up the promise of Genesis 3, watching the promises being fulfilled throughout all of these women in Israel, the nation now is working to bring forward their deliverance, but there's no deliverance. And then Isaiah says, but God will raise up the dead and the ground itself will give birth to the dead. So the Jewish people often spoke of the nation as a mother and the coming Messiah was going to come because of the birth pains of Israel. They called it the birth pangs of the Messiah. That to bring forward the Messiah, the nation would have to suffer and writhe in pain. So when we make it to John, by the time we make it to John, we hear this metaphor. I think that we are right to think that all of this biblical freight is being carried in the background, even if it's not in the foreground. And especially when the symbolism of what Jesus is doing is brought forward, he calls 12 disciples. 12 disciples because there's 12, nation, or 12 tribes in Israel and he is reformatting and remaking Israel in his image by his disciples. And by calling 12 of them, he's saying, you are now the new nation. And now he looks at them and says, you are the new nation of Israel and now you yourselves will go through the pains of birth as you see me die and get laid in a tomb and resurrected. That will be for you as though you were going through that pain. And listen, it's important for us to understand this word is for the disciples. And unlike other things that are spoken to the disciples, it is almost impossible to think that these things apply to us. Because the birth pains that they are going to go through and the turmoil that they are going to go through cannot possibly be experienced by us. It's impossible for us to understand it. The grieving and the loss that they've gone through through in one sense is perfectly understandable. They've lost a teacher somebody who led them for three years. They were disciples under him. But they haven't just lost that, it's worse. They've lost a friend, somebody who they've dearly loved. And that doesn't even fully capture it. They not only have lost a friend, but they've lost a friend to murder, to treachery and injustice. But it, it's worse than that because they lost a friend to murder who was betrayed by one of them. And they didn't know it. They didn't see it. But it's worse than all of that because Jesus wasn't just a friend who was betrayed by one of them and murdered. Jesus was carrying in himself as the Messiah all of the hopes and all of the promises of all of Israel and all of God's good work throughout all of history. It was all resting on his shoulders. When they saw Jesus, they saw all of the promises of Genesis coming true. That that all of the outside oppression of the people of God was going to come to an end in him, that God's reign would be restored through him, that all of God's truth would be brought to bear because of him, that the greatness of God above all the other gods would be shown most fully because Jesus Christ would reign above all of them. It is every hope that they've really truly ever had And not just them, the cultural baggage that was placed on their shoulders as believing in Jesus would have been immense. This is the great hope of Jews for 700 years. And they watch it perish. There's nothing in our experience that could, could possibly prepare us for something like that. 
like that we can even come close to comparing that to. It is their turmoil, it is their pain, and it is not ours. It was Jesus' job to crush the head of the serpent, and in his death it looks as though he has failed. It was Jesus' job to bring deliverance to his people, and instead the oppressor crushes him. It was Jesus' job to provide his people with security and peace, and he is now preparing them to run for their very lives. It is the end of all that is good, all that is noble. It's the same reason why in Revelation 5, we see John weeping. God holds in his hand a scroll. It's got seven seals on it. But it can't be opened. What that means is that no one can enact the will of God. That God has good desires for his people, but those good desires will never see the light of day because no one is strong enough to carry them out. He sees that symbolically in Revelation 5. He has experienced that symbolically for three days when Jesus dies before he's raised again. Their pain is quite exquisite and it's different than any that has come before or after. The other Israelites who were there did not love Jesus the way they would have loved. And I'm not, I'm talking about the 12 disciples, but certainly, please understand, there were women included in that that went through the same thing that the disciples went through. That pain would have been unique to them. The rest of the Jewish people didn't think of Jesus in the same light. And we'll talk about why we don't view it the same way afterwards. But, like a woman giving birth, their plan will give way to joy. Their, their pain, excuse me, will give way to joy. That when they see Jesus again, it will be like having a, a brand new child being given to them. There will be newness of life. They will see what all the pain was about. They will see that he has indeed crushed the head of the serpent, that he has indeed given deliverance to his people, that he has indeed made true all of the promises of God and more and in better ways than they could have ever hoped. This is true. They suffer, but then they rejoice. And that joy can never be taken away from them. His resurrection can never be undone. He is always reigning from the right hand of the Father. But the question then becomes, why does John keep this? If it's only for the disciples, why do we read of it? What is the goodness of this for us? That is a good question. And I think in this verse we have an odd hint. There is an odd expression that is used. It's an odd expression in the Greek. It's an odd expression in English. It's an odd expression that is used that the mother finds relief in this. Listen to the metaphor again, because this is weird. When a woman is giving birth, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she has delivered the baby, she no longer remembers the anguish for joy that a human being has been born into the world. It almost makes it sound like she is grateful that she didn't give birth to a cat, right? Like, whew, that was close. Thank goodness it is a human being that has been born into the world. Like, people don't talk like that. No one, no one says, like, writes out their little baby notes, like, I gave birth to a human being, right? Like, you can say, I gave birth to a child. I gave birth to a boy. And it's funny that Jesus earlier uses the word child. He, he says baby there. But then later on, he changes it to a human being. It's weird. No one talks like that. And it's not even a matter of no one talks like that now, but they used to back in the ancient days. I, I don't think that that's true. I just don't think that people talked much like that. 
The word is a really flexible word. The word can mean a solitary individual man. It can't mean a solid individual woman, but it can mean just a man. It is also used for all mankind. It can also talk about a subset of being in, in a human being. As a matter of fact, that's kind of how it's used the very first time it's ever used in scripture, which is back in Genesis 1:27, where God says, let us make man in our image and according to our likeness. That word man there stands for mankind, and it is precisely the same word that Jesus uses here, that she will give birth to a human being. She will give birth to, we could even say, mankind. Now, when Jesus uses it, I think that he, he is trying to give us a picture of what the disciples are really standing on the edge of. And that is why all of those other pictures of coming up out of the grave and coming up out of the earth and coming up out of wombs become so important that God has sprinkled throughout the rest of his word. Jesus comes out of a tomb from the earth alive. That is clearly the birth that is being spoken of here. It is clearly the fact that he has been resurrected to life again. That birth is just like Adam's. He is born out of the dust. He comes out of that tomb. It is a birth that looks just like Isaac's. That Isaac is the seed of Abraham. He is the one who comes out of a womb that is good as a rock, an empty, hollowed-out rock that might be called a tomb. It is not unlike that of Isaiah 26, where the dead will rise and the earth will give birth to a child. That is precisely what we have. It is not that she's giving birth to a child, it's that she's giving birth to mankind. There is a newness of what's going on here. What he is telling them is, this is not simply another step in the process. This is a remake of everything that you've held dear. This is a remake of Israel. It is a remake of of all of creation. Mankind is now new in Jesus Christ. And if mankind is new and we are somehow resetting back to Genesis 3, we would expect that there is now no curse. And that's precisely what we find. What he says is, this will happen and then there is joy. That pain is for them, but it is not for us. It is gone. Therefore, the biblical theme comes to an end with the resurrection of Jesus Christ because God has brought forward the seed that has already crushed the head of the serpent. He has undone the curse. So, the pain of labor now, while it continues in the flesh, is no longer there for bringing deliverance for God's people. It is gone. That is exactly what we ought to expect, and it is exactly what we get. Isaiah himself prophesied about this. In Isaiah 66, one of the last images that Isaiah gives to us talks about birth without pain. He says this, Before she was in labor she gave birth. Before her pain came upon her, she delivered a son. Who has heard such a thing? Who has seen such things? Shall a land be born in one day? Shall a nation be brought forth in one moment? For as soon as Zion was in labor, she brought forth her children. There is no pain. There is no labor. There is simply birth. Can a nation be born in one day? Can you give birth to somebody without pain? And Jesus says, yes, indeed you can. For when he came up out of that grave, he gave birth to a nation in one day. He was the remake of that nation. There is no pain. There is no labor. The curse is no more. The way that God had worked to build the family of his kingdom 
was always through the suffering of his people in giving birth. It was always linked to family, but now no longer will it be so. It will only be through the will of God. It will be brought forward. Children for the kingdom will be brought forward without the pain of labor, without the curse that infected Eve from the very beginning of time. This is not just prophesied in Isaiah. It is precisely, John says, what we should expect. Because he says, while he came to his own and his own did not receive them, in verses 12 and 13 of the first chapter of John, he says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. It is a birth outside of any effort of human will or exertion. It is a birth wholly done by the Spirit working in the lives of people, making them new again. This is exactly why we don't think that our children are automatically in the covenant because the curse is no longer. God does not bring forward children for his covenant through the working, even in his grace, of the pain and suffering of women anymore. It is brought forth only by the work of his Spirit outside of pain and suffering and toil. This is the work of God in our lives. Therefore, we don't need to become Jewish to be saved because the curse is no more and the working of God's people through labor and toil does not happen anymore, even when that labor and toil is infused with grace. We are made only by the promise of God being spoken over us. We are brought into the kingdom only by a work of God. There is no frustration. There is no labor. There is only the working of God's grace and the enacting of his promises. Our death or the death and resurrection of Christ has already then ended the curse. I know that women want to put up their hand and be like, okay, so yes, there is still pain in childbirth and in your flesh you still pay that penalty for the sins that have gone before you. I understand that. But you are no longer needing to do that in order to bring people into the kingdom of God. There is enacted already a kingdom that brings in children outside of any pain and suffering that you go through. This is a great gift of God. He is demonstrating to us how he is undoing the curse, how he is remaking all of creation, and how he does it through the death and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This is the promise of the gospel, that the curse is undone, that all of the things that have gone wrong and all of the evil that is in the world is slowly being undone. That what we get now is nothing but joy. There is joy. And it is joy that cannot be taken away from us. The one thing in these verses that applies to us is that there is birth and there is joy. The labor is not ours. The suffering is not ours. The turmoil is not ours. The weeping is not ours. What we get is thanksgiving to God for his gracious work in Jesus Christ. And for those who receive it, for those who trust in it, you are made a child of his, not because you were born to Sarah, not because you were born to Rebecca, not because you were born in a certain family at a certain time of a certain age. You are given over to it because God has made you for it. That and that alone. This is the great promise that the gospel has given to us. Every tribe, every tongue, every nation by the power of God and the preaching of his word. That is good news. Let's give praise to God. Let's pray. Father, how gracious are you to make us your children. You have done so outside of any effort or merit of ours. 
You have made us yours by your gracious and loving will. All boasting belongs to you. All praise belongs to you. All of your people are yours and yours alone. You have made us new in the resurrection of Christ from the dead, and all of our hope and our joy are found there. May your people today, now, everywhere, praise you for the work you have done in redeeming us from the dead in the resurrection of Jesus Christ our Lord. We pray to you. We pray to you in his name, for he is with you. And it is in his name only that we might ask. We do not pray this for our own benefit alone. We pray this, that your spirit would go out into the world, convicting the world of sin and righteousness and judgment, so that many, outside of their will, outside of their exertion, outside of anything except having the spirit work on them and they're responding in faith, that they might become the children of God. We thank you for that, for that is what has been done for us. May you receive glory and honor for the work that you have done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.